Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. All right, so we are about to embark on a 10-week series through uh, one of the books of the Bible that is uh, probably one of the most uncomfortable, violent, frustrating, confusing books that you could pick out of the Bible. Sounds awesome, right? So the question right out of the gate is what book, Judges, which you probably figured that out. Um, And so we're going to dive into Judges for 10 weeks. This book is highly ignored uh, in preaching, highly ignored in people's personal reading, and it's for good reason. Like It's not like, oh, we just didn't really ever get around to that one. Most people glance at it, and then they're like, ooh, that's tough. That's uncomfortable. Those are hard stories. Like, who wants to preach about a guy getting stabbed to the back of his spine and his guts falling out and blah, like that? Ooh, Sunday morning. Yay! I can't wait for that passage. Right? These are hard things to talk about. So the question is, why? Why, why are we going to do this as a church? First of all, the easy answer is it's Scripture. And just like Paul told Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God, and it is good for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in, righteous, uh, in righteousness. It, it's good to train up God's people to do good works. So all of God's word, even the parts of God's word that are hard to read, that make us uncomfortable, that we don't like, that don't feel fluffy and nice, like all of God's word is good for training us in righteousness, correcting us where we can be off track, um, teaching us when we're, there are things we just don't know what we don't know. This is where we find out, is from God's word. And so, so that's the obvious reason. The, the next question would be like, why now? Why, why is this, of all the things we could look at, of all the scripture we could unpack, like, okay, it's, in, it's scripture, but why judges right now? Why do we need to spend 10 weeks as a church like that? Seems a little over the top, right? Like 10 weeks of the, like, let's unpack one of the more difficult books with more difficult stories that are confusing and ignored, and let's do it longer than usual. Sounds like a good idea. I can see you guys are with me. You didn't see the people next to you were all nodding, right? In concurrence. The thing is, it's no secret, you guys, right now the world is crazy. The things that are going on around the world, the the struggles that are happening around the country, around the globe, the confusion, and... um, and it seems like as a leader in a church, one of the things that I keep seeing over and over and over as I talk with people, as I interact with people, whether it's from emails or online or in person or conversations in the lobby or before or after or bumping into people out at Walmart, it, it seems to all revolve around people trying to figure out how to navigate life right now. Like right now, people are stressed out. Uh, people are full of anxiety. Uh, many people are. They are worried about their jobs. They're worried about the future. They're stressed about the economy. They have no idea what's going on with their future. And then that's just their own little bubble. And then when you lift your eyes up off of yourself and look at the world around you, it's uglier. And there's division going on all over the place. And there's these stories and things that we're seeing coming out of Afghanistan that are heartbreaking. 
that are heartbreaking. And you're like, how do I deal with that? How do I feel about that? What do I think about that? Do I just try to like, "Eh, I don't like thinking about that. I'm just going to stuff that back where it came from. That one's tough. And people are trying to figure out, how do I navigate life right now? How do I walk through all of these things? And what I'm seeing more and more is that people are uh, God's people along with everybody else are sort of um, kind of uh, uh, assimilating into the same process. They're looking for answers. They want direction. And that in and of itself is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But they're going more and more and more to uh, social media. They're going to news outlets. They're going to uh, political leaders. They're going to celebrities. They're going to friends and relatives. They're going to uh, bosses, people at their employment. They're going to the HR department, like pick it, right? They're going to all kinds of places. And the reason they're trying to search out all those places for all these things is they're trying to figure out, like, what do I do about this thing today in my life? I got to make decisions about X right now. And they're trying to figure out, and it seems like now more than we have seen in a really long time, God's people aren't looking a whole lot different than the rest of the world in the places they're going for information, the places they're going for truth, the places they're going for direction. And this is a problem. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that you need to be really careful. You're going to worry about stuff. Like, stuff's going to come up. And when it does, let me tell you where the testimony is. You want to know, like, you want to find the easy answer? Check out butterflies. Look at ants. Look at the birds of the air. Look at these simple things and see how God provides for them. They have no worry for tomorrow. And he he just gives this simple, concrete analogy. Just look at the world around you like God is in control and will provide for you. Don't get sucked into worry and anxiety and stress. He says, he told the listeners at the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God. Like, that's our part. Our part is to seek first the kingdom of God. And right now, a lot of people are trying to figure out how to navigate life, and they're doing everything except seeking the kingdom of God. They're seeking direction and answers and help in all kinds of places. And because of that, I'm like, we need to dig into Scripture. We need to dig into God's Word. We need to learn from history. And if there was ever a book in the Bible that is full of history, story after story after story, of people that are in a similar situation to us, that we can look back and learn from their examples, it's the book of Judges. And you may be thinking like, okay, well, you're making some pretty generalized statements in there. Like God's people are, are you know, not really looking for truth in different places than the rest of the world. Like how would you know something like that? Here's some kind of statistics that might shock you a little bit. Um, what's been going on in the church world across the United States and Canada? Uh, I'm a part of several different networks. Um, and a part of different groups of pastors that gather and, and check up on each other and look out for each other. And there's a disturbing new benchmark that is becoming a new level of uh, kind of gauging the health of the church post-COVID. What's going on right now is uh, people look, to look at their numbers and they go, what were you at for church attendance pre-COVID? And now, after COVID, on the back end of things, as we're recalibrating and figuring out this, whatever this is, when you get to 50%, you're hitting home runs. 
In other words, when you get to half of the people coming to church that used to come to church, that's now a win. And I hope that sort of kicks you in the stomach a little bit like it did me. Like, wait a minute. The world has gotten much more difficult to navigate. There is much more division going on. There is much more political chaos going on in the world. There is much more spiritual chaos going on in the world. There are a lot of hard things happening in our own lives, in our own community, and around the world. And in a time like that, less people are coming to the place where they uh, proclaim the truth and God's word. Like fewer people are looking to church, a place where God's word is proclaimed and taught. And so for that, that, that... that's like, huh, right? Like as a leader in a church, those are not fun statistics to see. And to be a part of networks and to be a part of groups of pastors where I hear pastors talking about, like we're doing pretty good, we're almost up to half of what we used to be. And they're actually, and I've had the same conversation, been a, you know, pray to the same exact conversations, like, man, that seems really cool. Our own church, I shared this with somebody after uh, first service, and just so, like, some people just have no clue. Uh, Pre-COVID, we were 400, 440, 450 people in person just at Daggy. We didn't have Thursday nights then. Um, right now, our best weekend since COVID is like 260, including adding a service out in Colfax on Thursday nights. So I'm just like, That, for me, is a bit of a wake-up call as a leader to go, man, we, I, I, I know that God's people are wrestling with things, and if they're not coming here, and they're not a part of home groups, and they're not a part of relationship, and I'm not saying there's no way I can know what everybody's personal life is, but I can see indicators. And so for that reason, we're going to dive in, and we're going to look at the book of Judges, okay? And... This, uh, today, what we're going to unpack is just the first couple chapters. We're going to kind of just hit the highlight reel. The first two chapters of the book of Judges are like a summary. They sort of uh, tell you what happens over the whole period of Judges in uh, kind of a whole summary overview, like uh, the, the uh, movie trailer. And then when you get to chapter 3, it starts breaking it down in detail, in chronological order, and then we'll work our way looking through all of those stories individually. Today we're going to kind of just look at the the highlight reel, like kind of set us up to see what was going on. And in the beginning of Judges, it says that it starts with, after the death of Joshua. (coughs) And we know that Joshua um, had been as cool as Michael. Let's see. Are we there? Yeah. All right. So it starts off with after the death of Joshua, and uh, Joshua was an amazing warrior. He was the man that uh, God passed the baton to from Moses to him to lead God's people into the promised land. And while Joshua was alive, he was a mighty warrior, a great military leader, a great spiritual leader, and there were good things going on for God's people while he was alive. But... By the time he died, Israel had not finished the task. They had not 
moved all the Canaanites out of the land that that, uh, God had instructed them to do. And so after Joshua dies, um, they are trying to sort out how do we finish the task that God gave us. Judges 1 uh, picks up like this. The Israelites asked the Lord, which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Ju- uh, the Lord answered, Judah, for I have given them victory over the land. The men of Judah said to their relatives from the tribe of Simeon, join, us, uh, join with us to fight the Canaanites, living in the territory allotted to us, and then we will help you conquer your territory. So the men of Simeon went with Judah. So things start out really good. They're like, hey, we got to finish the task. God gave us real clear instructions about what we were supposed to do with these people living in this land, and it's not done yet. Why don't you guys come help us? They're like, awesome, let's work together. Things are off to a good start. Judges chapter four, verse, or chapter 1, verse 4 says, when the men of Judah attacked, the Lord gave them victory over the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and they killed 10,000 enemy warriors at the town of Bezek. While at Bezek, they encountered King Adonai Bezek. And fought against him. And the Canaanites and Perizzites were defeated. Adonai Bezek escaped, but the Israelites soon captured him and cut off his thumbs, right there, and big toes. Adonai Bezek said, I once had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, eating scraps from under my table. And now God has paid me back for what I did to them. And they took him up to Jerusalem, and he died there. So, I want to pause and just kind of chase a little rabbit trail here for just a second. Because a lot of people, when we get into uh, the book of Judges, struggle with this idea that, that God actually gave his people instructions to kill lots of people. And it's like, at first glance, you look at that, and people can look at it and go, wait, <laughs> wait a minute. This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem like the good God I know, the gracious God, the God of mercy and kindness. And, and we love a Hallmark Jesus. And man, Hallmark Jesus and God of the Old Testament, they don't live in the same zip code when we read these stories, right? And so we wrestle with that. And so what I want you to, I want to say a couple of things. One, as you're reading these stories and we're studying and learning, uh, it's good for you to ask questions, it's good for you to read a story and go, whoa, this is hard. I don't understand. This makes me ask and write out 10 questions. Hallelujah. That is great that you have questions. Now here's the challenge is to go back to the text and let God's word point you to the answers so that you're not answering with your gut feeling or, you know, I, well, this is what I think, or this is what I believe, or someone said this, or you asked Dr. Google, right? Like, we let God's word guide us to understand some of these difficult things. And right out of the gate with this passage, for example, this king, he, uh, when he gets his thumbs and his toes caught off, cut off and he gets captured, he, he doesn't say, hey, your God is unfair, your God's unjust, this is not merciful, I thought you guys had the nicest God. He doesn't say that at all. What he says is, I had 70 kings groveling, humiliating them under my table, begging for scraps with their thumbs and toes caught off, and your God is paying me back for the wickedness that I did. He knows. He knows why it's happening to him. And he knows exactly what God told Moses, and Moses explained to God's people in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5, Moses tells them, 
Sorry, hang in there with me. Uh, Moses tells him, it's not because you're so good or you have such integrity that you're about to occupy their land. The Lord your God will drive these nations out ahead of you only because of their wickedness and to fulfill the oath that he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, so Moses is trying to help the Israelites understand the, the reason we're going here so they're rescued out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. It's a free game. You can go in any direction except the sea, right? Like they're, you know, Mediterranean wasn't really an option. They could go in any direction. And he's like, we're going to this place. This is the land that God has for us. But I want to make sure you guys understand something that's really important. It, you're not getting to go in here and take over these houses that you didn't build and reap crops that you didn't plant and live in the fruitfulness of lives that you didn't cultivate and make. You're not getting all of that because you're so great. It's not about because your integrity is amazing. Like when nobody's looking, I don't know if you remember where you were, what was up when Moses is like, I think I seem to remember leaving you when I went to the mountain one time and came back and you weren't doing so hot. He's like, the reason you're going to this direction, the reason we're going to this place, the reason God's given us this land is because of their wickedness. And so God's doing something here that's uncomfortable for a lot of us. He's doing two things totally different from each other simultaneously. He is bringing about consequences for a wicked nation that for generations had been wicked and, wicked and had hardened hearts and did evil things and would not submit or know or put their faith in the one true God. And, and God knew it, and there was consequences coming for him, and so he's dealing out consequences for them. Simultaneously at the same time, completely unrelated, he's rescuing a people that he's going to call unto himself to redeem them and raise them up to be his nation of priests, to represent him, to be his ambassadors. And so he's doing these two things that are different things in the same place that overlaps at the same time, and it's messy. And we get confused. And we start to ask questions, and we're like, ah, oh, this is hard. I don't like reading about this stuff. Like, I don't like the idea that God killed a lot of people. Like, ooh, this is uncomfortable. What could they have possibly done? Like, seriously, like, what did they do that, that stirred that kind of anger against them? And when you look at uh, Deuteronomy, I think God's people probably asked Moses the same kind of thing. I think God's people probably asked because Moses tells them, <coughs> he says, uh, when you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, be very careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as burnt offering. In case you needed to be reminded of that one. And for us now, we're like, what? But if that was a normal part of religious practice to pagan gods, in a place we were moving and you'd never seen it, it might catch you off guard. He says, don't ever do that. Do not let people practice, uh, do not let your people practice fortune telling or use sorcery or interpret omens or engage in witchcraft or cast spells or function as mediums or psychics or call forth the spirits of the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. It is because of the nations uh, that have done these detestable things that the Lord your God will drive them out ahead of you. 
but you must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you are about to displace consult sorcerers and fortune tellers, but the Lord your God forbids you to do such things. <laughs> so the, that little chunk of Deuteronomy right there is like cliff notes. That's like a teeny tiny little snapshot of what was going on in the land of Canaan, the promised land that God was sending his people. If you want more of a like full meal deal, graphic detail, you want to know if you're the person that likes the crime shows, you know who you are. Um, Leviticus 18. Go read Leviticus 18 and you'll get a snapshot of what was really going on, the wickedness and the, the levels of wickedness that were going on. Here's the cool thing. With Jesus, the plan changed. With Jesus, God brought about a a way to redeem his people once and for all through a savior who would lay down his life and model a sacrificial way of faith unlike the way God had redeemed and rescued and dealt with sin in the past. And so when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're invited to follow in his ways. We get to be, uh, we get to be uh, mercy dealers, not justice people. We get to focus on laying our lives down. Uh, to be a disciple of Jesus is a sacrificial lifestyle, is a selfless lifestyle. It's a dying to yourself, putting your own wants, needs, and desires down daily in all kinds of circumstances, to do what's best for the kingdom of God. And when we do that, we actually live out our purpose. We glorify God. People look at us and go, man, something about them, right? Like, it's like like somebody saying to, when your kids go over to their house, and you're like, oh, I don't know how they were, but they go to somebody else's house, and you get a report back, and you're like, my kid, they're like, your kids are so good, right? That's a way of that child glorifying their parents. In all the right ways, they made their parents look good because of the way they lived and loved and talked and treated people. When we are doing it right, following Jesus right, we're glorifying our Father in heaven, and that is our highest purpose on earth. And people look at us and go, man, your God must be amazing because like, this is, this is, I don't see a lot of this happening in the world. And that's what Christians have done since the time of Jesus. All right, so back to the text. All right, let's jump back into Judges, chapter 19. The Lord was with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. Those pesky iron chariots. These were like the uh, armored tanks of the day, right? Uh, An iron chariot could probably knock down a hundred foot soldiers, and that's all Israel had was foot soldiers. And so they... They go in, they start to follow through, right? Remember, it started off so good. They, Joshua died, but they rallied together. They were going to finish the job that God had instructed them to do to, to uh, push the Canaanites out and move them out, not have any of them in their land, not make any compromises. But all of a sudden, they come up against something difficult, and we see Israel start to make their first excuse. Like, seriously, iron chariots. I mean, come on, God, Right? And then it goes again. They start to make more compromises in chapter, or, uh, chapter 127. <coughs> 
the tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people living in Bethshan, Tanakh, Dor, uh, Iblim, uh, Megiddo, and all the surrounding settlements because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. So wait a minute. When you go tell people to leave their house that they built, they're determined to stay? Shocker. Right? They were determined to stay. They were difficult. And so they come back and it's like, wait a minute, we like, it was going so good until we bumped up against the iron chariots and then there was these people and they were obstinate and stubborn and we've tried and, and we just can't seem to get them to do what we want them to do, right? But, but we got a better idea. We got a better idea. We consulted ourselves and we thought it'd be nice to have some slaves because I hate cleaning the bathroom, right? Judges 128. Uh, when the Israelites grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves, but they never did drive them completely out of the land. So they compromise. Tim Keller wrote a good book on Judges, and one of the things he talked about in there is he says the first chapter of Judges is a little bit like um, God's people giving a press release about how their uh, um, uh, effort went to take over the land, the promised land. And it's, it's sort of like them putting their spin on it. Like, hey, we want to tell you how it went. This is the press release. This is how the military conquest went. And we got to try and kind of polish it up a little bit so that you understand why it didn't go the way God expected it to. Like, we know God had this in mind, but when we actually got there, it's this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened. But we, we came out pretty good in the end. We got some free labor. So, I mean, there was that, right? Like, it's like spin, But then there's God's assessment of it, which doesn't really line up with their assessment of it. Judges chapter 2, he says, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. Uh, they will be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. So, they make compromises. They slide down the slippery slope. God says, you didn't do your part. I did my part. You didn't do, do your part. And so we're going to look at a few lessons that kind of come up in the first couple uh, chapters of Judges that shape the way the rest of the book plays out. And so this first lesson is this. Um, small areas of disbelief result in large areas of disaster. Small areas of disbelief result in large areas of disaster. Here we see Israel saying, you know... <laughs> God, we can't. We can't drive them out. I mean, look at the chariots. Look at how hard they are to get out of here. They're stubborn. They're obstinate. Like, we, we've tried and we've tried and we've tried. And God comes along and says, it's not about whether you can or can't. It's just simply that you won't. And so, for us, in our own personal life, one of the questions I think we need to be asking ourselves as we learn from history and we learn from God's word and we learn from God's people is, is there anything going on in our life where God's calling us to deal with it, to get rid of the little Canaanites, right? Like there's some junk in our life that's not lining up with kingdom of God. And is, is God saying, it's, you have to get rid of that? And we're like, yeah, but, yeah, but. 
Is there anything in our life where we're saying, I can't, and God's saying, actually, I think it's more an issue if you won't? I read one guy talk about, like, our, our lives are like the unconquered land of Canaan. And so prior to faith in Christ, we're just kind of have our own little Canaan going on, doing what we want, the way we learned. And then God comes in, and it's like, there are some things that need cleaned up. There are some things that don't, like, this temple and this temple, they shouldn't be standing next to each other. Right? That stuff doesn't go next to that stuff. And so I think one of the challenges for us is looking at our lives and going, like, is there stuff that I'm hanging on to? Oftentimes, as we come to Christ, it's easy to deal with the external stuff that other people see because, let's be honest, other people see it. Right? Language, for example, is one that a lot of people kind of conquer early on in their walk. They're like, man, I used to swear like a sailor. I gave my life to the Lord, and for some reason I was convicted about that, and it bothered me, and so I started to be really mindful about how I talked because I didn't want to talk that way anymore. I wanted to talk about like things that are pure and lovely and whole and good, and it's like, awesome, way to go. That same person is like, but there's this other stuff that I know, <laughs> I know is not good, I know is not right, but I, I've tried dealing with it, right? I've heard people talk about kind of explanations of, you don't understand how long that's been a part of my life. It's going to be, it's, you're not going to just get rid of that overnight. And God's like, really? Try me. And so those are things that we need to wrestle with as we're going through this series. Uh, what happens when we don't look inward and deal with our stuff is it's just a matter of time before those little a- <laughs> goodness for the little areas of disbelief uh, become big areas of disaster, and that's exactly what happens to the Israelites. Check out Judges chapter two, verse twelve. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and images of Ashtoreth. They made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. If there's ever a place in the Bible that shows this example that sin leads to slavery, this has got to be one. When we let that stuff go unchecked and it grows, there's consequences. Lesson number two. We choose between the God who saves and the gods that enslave. We get to choose. Just like they got to choose between putting their trust in the God that saves and gods that enslaves, uh, that enslave. And, And as much as we want to believe that we're different from the people in Canaan, and the Israelites, the ancient people that were more modern, were more advanced. We don't do what they did. We don't think like they think. We still struggle with worshiping idols. Maybe as much or more as was the case then in some, t- in some cases. Instead of Baal and Ashtoreth, we have new and improved idols, right? Money, careers, your reputation, the list goes on.
back to the text, it goes like this. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. And you're going to see, you'll see in your sermon notes, there's a, a little a little diagram with some blanks to fill in there. Um, we'll just go through that real quick. This is a cycle that we're going to see over and over throughout the book of Judges, and some of you may be familiar with something like it. It starts off when God's people sin, and then as God pe- God's people sin and turn from seeking the kingdom and seeking God first, it leads to oppression, and when they're oppressed... They cry out for mercy and help, and, and then there's repentance. And then God raises up a judge, and there's deliverance. And then there's a time of peace. And this cycle plays out over and over and over. And we're going to see some really interesting things about how it plays out and how long the different seasons are and how they relate to one another that I think might be insightful for us in our own personal walk as we go through this whole series. But one of the things I think probably many people are familiar with and have seen this before, this, uh, they've seen some version of this, and oftentimes this is called the cycle of sin. And it puts the emphasis on uh, the depravity or the wickedness or the, the rottenness of mankind, that people just left to their own devices, inevitably they blow it. And there is some reality to that, right? There's some truth to that. And we all wrestle with that in our own personal walk, in our own personal lives. We understand that willpower and just good old-fashioned try hard every day doesn't lead us to, to like live a perfect righteous life. But one of the things I want us to look at and one of the tensions we're going to wrestle with as we go through this series is that cycle could also be called the cycle of redemption, Because what we're going to see over and over and over again as we go through Judges is that in spite of where God's people are at and what God's people are up to, God is a God who redeems. God is a God who has set in place before people are even ready for redemption, before people are even ready for deliverance. He's made a way and had a plan to rescue and redeem and, and have mercy on them. And so we're going to see God playing out this, this story over and over and over again, where he is a God who is not far off, not looking to punish, not angry, ticked off. It's going to take forever to get right with him again. You might as well never go back because he's going to be so mad when you get there. That is not the picture of God we see at all. We see a picture of a God who is eager to redeem and restore and rescue. And over and over and over throughout the book of Judges, we'll see these stories and they lead us to, it's like training us, training our eye, training our mind, training our hearts to be ready to imagine that God would once and for all send someone to save us even before we were ready to be saved. And that people that we don't even know yet, kids you haven't had yet, have that same opportunity because of God's foresight, because of God's goodness, because of God's deep commitment to redemption. 
And we'll see that play out over and over as we go through the stories. The last lesson real quick is this. Amnesia leads to abandonment. Amnesia leads to abandonment. (coughs) Um, Remember in chapter two, God confronts him and says, like, I brought you out of Egypt. He kind of reminds them the Exodus story. I I brought you out of here. This is where I was taking you. It was to fulfill the promise. Why do you think God would have to, like, retell them why they were there, like, like, as if they forgot? And then it goes on in uh, Judges chapter two, verse 10. It says, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel. Some translations say, um, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not know the Lord. So that word, know or acknowledge, the behind the scenes, the Hebrew word there is called yada. Try that one out. It's kind of fun. Yada. Now say yada, yada. Exactly. Somebody had to do it, right? Okay, now you're going to be embarrassed when I tell you what it means. Because you just said yada, yada, yada in front of everybody. All right, so yada is a, a Hebrew word that means no, but in a really special way. It means no like the way Adam knew Eve. Like real, real, real good. It means no the way husbands know wives. Like there is this intimacy and connectedness and closeness that that word carries with it. And so what the writer of the book is saying is that there, there rose up a generation of people who didn't have this intimate day-to-day connection with their God. It had nothing to do with, did they know who God was? Yeah, they knew who God was. Did they know about the Exodus? Did they know about the plagues? Did they know the story of the Passover? Did they know about the time in the wilderness? Did they know about the commandments? Did they know about the fire by night and the cloud by day? Ah, yes, they knew about all that stuff. But there's a big difference between knowing about it and having it intimately woven into your everyday life. And what the writer says is there rose up a generation who didn't intimately weave their knowledge of God. They didn't know God so intimately that he was a part of their everyday life. And I don't know about you, but man, that is a struggle that will go to the end of time. Because so many of us in this room can know a lot about God. Some have had the absolute luxury and blessing of growing up in a Christian home and being trained up to know God's word since you were young. Others have just responded to faith and to the call of Jesus and have dug in and and went out and sought (coughs) to pursue following Jesus. And, And all of us have all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of opportunities to know God, to learn about God's word. Like you can get on Right Now Media and have some of the best Bible teachers that have ever walked the planet sitting in your living room like tonight, right? Like it's amazing, the abundance of help and support and, and helping us learn and know about God and God's word and the history of our faith. It's so available. But there's a huge difference between knowing the stuff and knowing intimately weaving it into our everyday lives. And when we slip away from weaving it into our everyday life, into the decisions about the, the, the food we eat, the TV show we watch, the thing that we say to our spouse, the date we do go on or don't go on, the swipe left or swipe right stuff, right? Like when, when intimately following God and making the kingdom of God the most important thing in our lives, when that starts to slip away from being really a part of the fabric of our everyday living, 
I'm telling you, we start to stand on shaky ground. And I don't know about you guys, but I have a few degrees from the School of Hard Knocks and I'm ready to not get any more, right? Like learning the hard way. I would rather learn from history. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks diving into this book and unpacking history and learning from God's people and learning from the things they did right, the things they did wrong, learning from, uh, learning about who God is and what God's like so that we can be spurred on in our relationship with Lord, the Lord and, and not have to make some of the mistakes that they made. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.